Super Talk Mississippi media production. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome to Coast View, the show that every single day celebrates the men and women who are making Coast of Mississippi such an amazing place to live, work, and play. Hey, you may not realize this. Um, Maybe it popped up in your feed on Facebook, or maybe you read a story about it. But in April, we passed the 10-year anniversary of the oil spill. Obviously, that's not something we all want to remember, to be quite honest with you. It was a difficult aftermath that we had to deal with. I think we're in a better place today. And as I said to someone the other day, he said, you know, how did BP do? And I said, well, I guess we'll know in 100 years you know, when we look back on all this. But um, for people who aren't aware of this, I was the publisher of the press register and president of a company that had responsibilities for other media companies, including Birmingham and Huntsville and other companies across the state of Alabama when, I, when the oil spill hit. And I was asked by Governor Riley, Bob Riley, to lead the the oil recovery planning efforts for the state of Alabama. And uh, he was about to leave office. A new a new governor was coming on. We had a lot of pomp and circumstance around doing the handoff of the plan. Had over a thousand people involved in that effort. And we, we modeled it much like we did the Governor's Commission on Recovery, Rebuilding, and Renewal here in coastal Mississippi. And in that process, I got to know some amazing people. I mean, I love Alabama. I love especially lower Alabama. Baldwin, by the way, Baldwin County, one of the largest counties in the entire United States. And as we all know, you go down south, you, you have you know Gulf Shores and Orange Beach and Bon Secours, areas like that that are very special. If I look at the people that I got to know and work with closely during that effort after the oil spill, one person really sticks out. And he's someone we're going to spend a whole show talking to today. We're going to learn a lot about the history of seafood here in, here on the coast. We're going to learn a lot about oysters. And he's in a re, really unique position to understand sort of the state of affairs for uh, oysters in our part of the country. But his name is Chris Nelson. He's the president of Bon Secours Fisheries in, uh, in, in well, Baldwin County in Bon Secours. And he's a really good friend. So let me welcome you to Coast View, my friend. Thanks, Ricky. Really honored to be here. I mentioned uh, to Mike and Anila Arguelles, who uh, have the French French Hermit Oyster Company. They're doing aquaculture. That during the oil spill, I got a chance to really appreciate what you do, and in particular what you do, because you, you you in college you studied biology, you went on to get a marine science degree. And uh, you gravitated toward the science side of things as it related to seafood, especially oysters. Uh, oysters, you know, I think uh, there, there are some people who say that that uh, dolphins are sort of the canary in the landmine when you think about the, the health of, a, of an a- ecosystem like the Mississippi Sound. But, you know, actually, I can go, uh, you know, maybe uh, one up them on that and say maybe oysters are in a better position to tell us the health of a fishery. But you you really helped me understand that it's as much about science as it is about anything else, and I really appreciate you for that. It's a, I've carried that with me through the work that I've done since then, and particularly as it relates to this show. 
but we're gonna we're gonna relive some of your some of the steps. We're gonna talk about the challenge of the oil spill, certainly the the opening of the Bonnie Carey Spillway and what that meant to your business. But let's take a step back for a second. Um, tell me about Bon Secours Fisheries. Well, we're a uh, we're a family business. I'm fourth generation. Uh, my great grandfather got the family going in this business in the late 1890s, uh, mid to late 1890s. And um, he started planting oysters. He, he married into a, a German family here locally that were uh, oyster farmers, for lack of a better term. They called themselves planters because they would catch oysters in other parts of the bay, Mobile Bay, and plant them on uh, leased bottom that they leased from the state of Alabama, grew, grew oysters. He marketed those oysters in Mobile. And my grandfather did a, a very similar business. He was maybe even more extensive in the growing of the oysters. He had lots of plant beds up and down what we call the north and south shore of uh, Bon Secours Bay. And then my father, um, after he came back from World War II, uh, expanded the business into shrimping, and shrimp became really the big part of our business through the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s. And then when shrimping for us slowed down, we've come back around to um, to doing a lot of, still doing uh, a good bit of processing of oysters. But we also are more and more into uh, the distribution of seafood in general. And so we distribute seafood from uh, the Gulf of Mexico, uh, domestic waters, and quite a bit of uh, imported seafood, too, that we are um, kind of forced to have to distribute because of the supply of seafood products is uh, in, from the United States is restricted. And so we, we service primarily the southeastern U.S. Um, we also distribute some uh, into the Midwest and up in the Northeast as well. So that's that's Bon Secours Fisheries. We're 130 year old company um, trying to trying to keep going. It's been a tough tough 20 years or so here the last since since about 2000. We've had lots and lots of challenges. A lot of challenges, man. I mean, you think about the world markets, you know, the changes and the need to diversify and all of that. The, the the way as you pointed out very well the, the the change in domestic seafood the need to to really get into the importing business <clears throat> you would have you would have never or in the early days defined yourselves as a seafood distributor because you were you were in the seafood business and you were you were kind of local for the most part and then you 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 began to branch out but you I mean when you say the southeast you you you've got trucks going all over the place every single day don't you we do. We do. We've got trucks going to pick up oysters in Louisiana and Texas, bring them back here to process. And then we have trucks going throughout the southeast to uh, deliver the product to other wholesalers as well as directly to restaurants. We really, you know, speaking of the oil spill, we the, the restaurant uh, food service deliver food service distribution business that we appreciate now locally, uh, that was really important to us and has has grown since the oil spill because a lot of areas interior to the country uh, shied away from Gulf seafood for a while, as you well know, and that was a big part of our recovery effort was to try to 
try to counter that, to try to respond to that um, consumer um, uh, response to the images that they were seeing via media, the various media platforms regarding the oil spill. And so our local restaurants were big supporters because, you know, they wanted to have local seafood. And, and so there was a tremendous partnership built up between the seafood community and uh, the hospitality industry here, and it remains. And so we're, we're, um, we're, we do a lot of really good business with the local restaurants. You know, it is it isn't interesting, and you know, we there's so many so many ways we can have the conversation. But at a time when the oil spill happens and people are seeing those gooey images and all the challenges, et cetera, tar balls, you know, washing up on the beach, et cetera, mm-hmm. it's it is it is when you look across the coast states, certainly in Alabama, very very coordinated effort. To flip the script, literally, to put focus back on that it's safe, that it's that it tastes good, that that Gulf raised seafood is 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 valuable. And it, we, I think, we effectively flipped that switch, that uh, that script, didn't we? We did. We did. Um, we we weren't alone in trying to fight that battle, but we played a big role in it, um, and. I think we uh, started a lot of important efforts. For instance, the Seafood Marketing Commission here in Alabama grew out of our efforts, and that remains a, an important source of information about Alabama seafood, which really can can serve as a, a as a model for other Gulf of Mexico-based seafood uh, su- uh, supply, and. Um, it it's it's a you know it's still a very important effort for the community. I know it was one of our major recommendations, but you, you, the kind of energy that went into that, we were very aligned. Uh, had a lot of science that that proved that that the seafood was safe, and uh, it gave it really gave you an opportunity to 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 build relationships, like you pointed out, that that continue to be leveraged today. I mean, it was a very trying time. That was there was a moment in time. I remember looking at you. I visited you down there. Uh, you were still processing oysters during that time. I remember all all your people opening those oysters. I mean, it's it. There's you can't automate the the opening of an oyster, can you, Chris? Not yet. We we continue to try. That's that's kind of a holy grail. One of the holy grails, anyway, in the oyster business is to try to come up with an automated oyster shucking um, machine. But it hasn't been automated yet. It's because they're also different in in the you know shape and size and what have you that's it's a natural product it's you know different from say a potato or something that you can that that's grown that way i remember when i visited you early in the process after the oil spill and uh had a chance to see your operation i think i met your father and your brother during that visit and one of the things that hit me was this is why we have to do what we're doing. This is why we have to have a plan. This is why we have to keep people focused on on recovery. And a lot of it had to do with the marketing recovery as well. But um, it was a it was a dynamic time. It was because of what I learned from you. It kept me kind of focused on trying to keep everybody together and focused on on recovery. So when we come back, we can continue our, fr- our conversation with my friend Chris Nelson, the president of Bon Secours Fisheries. We'll see you after this break.
listen live or on demand and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. His love for the coast is why he's here. It's Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. We're having a conversation about Gulf seafood. And uh, we just passed you know, the 10-year anniversary of the oil spill, but there have been other challenges along the way, of course. Hurricane Katrina and other hurricanes, uh, the algae bloom after the Bonacary spillway and opening and all you know there's just there's always something going on and now of course they had to deal with the pandemic and now you you know it'll be interesting to hear how sort of the 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 supply chain shortages are affecting your business today but let's just take a step back for a second you you literally grew up in the business but your i guess your parents were very focused on making sure you get a great education tell me about what you learned from them and the importance of education and how you how you've leveraged that in the work that you do today well, my mother was a uh, English teacher. She was a high school English teacher, so she was very focused on on education. My father was as well. Uh, his father was not educated, and he he valued um, my father valued education probably based on watching his father struggle a little bit in business from from a lack of education, uh, and his. Um, he he was largely self-educated, my father, but he he knew a tremendous amount about accounting and business that he picked up along the way uh, after his um, after his time in World War II in the Navy, and um, they both yes they both emphasized getting uh, at least a college education, and I went on and got uh, a, a master's degree in marine science as you mentioned. Um, my dad wanted me to get a PhD. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what I would have done with it at Montscore Fisheries because he also wanted me to come back and work in the business. But anyway, I did never did get that. But you, you know, along the way, though, it's very interesting. What I liked about you is that you knew that you had to remain connected in the industry. So you were always, you know, working as much outside of work to try to help push the seafood industry forward to stay focused on regulation on the science side of it i mean it's really if you go back over the last i don't know how many i don't know how long you've been doing literally doing this all your life now 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 that yeah. we look back on it 30 um, 30 years since i got back in the business yeah. been, i mean it's that it's been so dynamic i mean so many twists and turns mm-hmm. Uh, you've been able to maintain a good, strong business through it all. What keeps that going? Is it is it the family heritage, a love of the business, you just love business in general, and wanting to be entrepreneurial and responsive to the market? What what keeps you going? We've we've got a lot of really good employees here, and we maintain a, a really good group both in management and in the plant working, and. It's, you know, we try to promote a culture of, um, you know, support for one another. It's because it's a family business. A lot of people tell me that it feels like family down here, which I think is good. I mean, it's a very good thing. It makes it tough from time to time because family is tough. But uh, it, it, what it allows you to do is to lean on each other. And, you know, that's what we did during the oil spill. It's, we, had, we really had to do it during COVID. 
that was a very painful time. But, um, but you know, it was. I, I think that's a big secret to our success has been the the um, certainly the entrepreneurial spirit of my father, and the support that my mother gave him gave us a, a really big push uh, early on in the shrimp business. But then from that, the community itself uh, appreciated having a place to work. I think the uh, the shrimp fleet that was in here appreciated having a steady market for their catch. And the community has supported us and we've supported it um, over, you know, really over the last 50, 60 years tremendously. And that's that's been a big part of, of why we remain. You know, I remember I had this kind of very specific image in my head. When you when you arrive at Bon Secours Fisheries, you have these beautiful majestic oaks and of course the docks back behind and there were a couple of shrimp boats that were unloading when we were there. It just felt like literally a scene out of Forrest Gump. I mean, it was uh, <laughs> it was that 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 kind of feel. Yeah. I'm sure I'm not the only one who has said that, but uh, but it's a it's a very special place. Bon Secours is is a very special place, isn't it? It is. It is. Um, you know, the, the the name of the community means safe harbor or good harbor in French. And, you know, in a lot of people's hearts, it's it's where they a lot of people come back home like I did, because it's it's where their uh, where their moorings are, to take the analogy a little bit further. And so it's it is a very special place. It's getting a little crowded. <laughs> It's being discovered. South, That's South what you Baldwin mean. South Baldwin County is uh, the traffic's getting a little challenging, but uh, but we love the area. It's a beautiful area. It it really is. Okay, so look, let's. Um, you mentioned you mentioned the pandemic. I can only imagine how difficult that was because you have you have to you run an operation where people sit close to one another, and then you had the 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 issues of uh, a restaurant struggling and all of that, but. You know, coming out of the pandemic, um, what what's what's sort of the state of affairs for you guys? Well, we we took the opportunity of the pandemic to really try to restructure a lot of what we did. Um, it it was extremely painful, and change is always painful. But it's been, you know, in I think in the long run. The experience will have been a good one for us um, in, in in many ways. Uh, one thing it showed us is the um, is that we had an over reliance on uh, food service distribution and restaurant the the restaurant pipeline to get to sell the seafood. We haven't really done a lot with that, but it's um, it, it's something we continue to look at and 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 think about ways that we can exploit um, the, the retail side, you know, direct to consumer. And a lot of seafood companies are doing that and seemingly being successful. But um, it's it's not something you can wave a wand and make happen. But we're we're making some progress in that direction to try to sell more uh, direct to consumers, either through other retailers or out our own door. Well, you mentioned, of course, I mean, oysters come from all all over. You mentioned sort of regularly buy from Louisiana and Texas. How many points of, of uh, I, I would say, you know, points, I, I, wanted, I wanted to say distribution, but you're, where you would pick it up, how many different pickup spots do you work with on a daily basis to determine where you're going to get your oysters? 
Well, it, it depends on the season. And right now we're we're picking up primarily in Louisiana because that's that's the only game in town um, for the most part until uh, Texas opens its public reef season in November every year. November one is the opening of the of the public reef. Louisiana has not had a public reef uh, fishery uh, to speak of in a long time. They had a small opening this year in Sister Lake in uh, West Central uh, Louisiana, Terrebonne Parish. Um, but in, in Mississippi's public reefs have been woeful. Um, not picking on you, but I'm just yeah. saying it's, it's been since, really since Katrina. But after Katrina, there was a little bit of harvest in Mississippi. The oil spill seemed to to draw it to a close. And then, of course, the Bonnie Carey spillway opening that you mentioned has kept Mississippi off the off the board uh, as far as the source of oysters. So um, and, and Alabama, actually, the, the last three years has had a pretty decent season. But our fishery is tiny. We're talking yeah. you know, small boats with catching six bushels per person. Um, but cumulatively, it was an important uh, input. So depending on the time of the year, uh, we could be in Alabama. We could be across the bay here picking up oysters. We could be in Louisiana. Um, we might be in Mississippi picking up from some people that are able to fish oysters in Louisiana uh, or all the way in South, really what I call South Texas, down close to, close to uh, Corpus Christi in the fall and early parts of the winter we'll be picking up down there. So up and down the coast, uh, Florida, I would love to say Florida would be in that mix, but Florida hasn't had much of a, an oyster fishery since Apalachicola closed down. Uh, so it's it's not an important source for us, but we would like to change that. Christian, when my wife Ann and I went to Croatia uh, three years ago, I was blown away at the number of um, aquaculture operations all over that country, and be most you know, beautifully, beautiful, pristine water cage cages they use that are up above, you know, floating on top of the surface. But I mean, I'm talking about lots of them. So, I, so when as a precursor to what you're beginning to see evolve now with with aquaculture of of uh, orchards, I tell you what, we're coming to the end of this segment. When, when we come back on the other side, we'll talk about. The evolution of aquaculture okay. and how it, you know, is it beginning to really make an impact? I know it's still relative to the total number of of uh, sacks of oyster gets probably very small, but but maybe it's not. Maybe it's getting to, to be significant today. But when we come back, we're having a conversation with my friend Chris Nelson, who's the president of Bon Secor Fisheries in uh, Lower Baldwin County in, in Bon Secor, and he has a real good sort of view across. The entire Gulf states as it relates to what the state of affairs with uh, seafood these days, especially given that we just celebrated, or you can't say really celebrated, the 10-year anniversary of the oil spill. We'll see you after this break. Subscribe for free to the Coast View Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. 
Welcome back to Coast View. We're having a conversation with Chris Nelson, who's president of Bon Secours Fisheries in Baldwin, Alabama. Someone I got to know really well back in the aftermath of the oil spill in Alabama. And he's in a really good position because he's doing business all throughout the Southeast. And he brings in orchards from coastal states across you know, the, the northern Gulf Coast. And it's just in a good position to sort of give us the state of affairs as it relates to the seafood industry these days. Hey, when we went to break, I mentioned about what I observed in Croatia and what we're seeing is burgeoning uh, small economy, but still burgeoning economy around aquaculture of orchards. How, how do you view that? And what, what's the future of that? Oh, it's, it's got a tremendous future. Uh, it's, it's the next evolution of the oyster business along the Gulf Coast. Um, it's got a lot of challenges to overcome. Um, and it, I think it can ultimately fit in very well with the wild fishery uh, as it supplies the, uh, the market for oysters. The one thing that we haven't figured out, I say we as I keep referring to the oyster community, I'm talking about the industry, the uh, academia that supports us, and the regulatory community that also is a, is a big player here. We really haven't figured out how to integrate the aquaculture uh, hatchery raised oyster. I'm going to use that as a um, as kind of a line that when you want to talk about aquacultured oysters in the Gulf, along the Gulf Coast or really in the United States, that's typically people are talking about starting with a seed oyster, a small oyster that's been reared in a hatchery first. Because the guys in Louisiana and some leases in Texas uh, as well grow oysters on bottom, but what they're doing is they're putting out culch material, hard material like a uh, gravel or oyster shell itself uh, used to put out clam shells uh, that would would provide a surface for the small oyster to attach to, and then provide some protection for that oyster while it was on the bottom, and they had access or exclusive access to that area to harvest the the adult oyster when it matured, and so that's an extensive form of aquaculture. Uh, or mariculture, a lot of people would call that, but that's really considered a wild fishery in a lot of ways. So anyway, back to aquaculture, the hatchery-reared product. If we can figure out how to support um, the oyster processing industry with aquaculture, I think it will fit in much more nicely. Now, the the two industries or the two sources of production, aquaculture and wild, are are seen to be um, you know, kind of going towards two completely different markets. And that's okay. That uh, for, for now, the, the aquaculture product is more of a white tablecloth, fine dining, you know, only going to be served on the half shell raw type product. It's the shell is usually smaller. Uh, the meats are often just as large, if not larger than the wild oyster, but it doesn't lend itself to say the what's become very popular, the char-grilled or char-broiled oyster, and it doesn't lend itself very well to oyster opening or shucking to, to be able to provide oysters uh, already shucked that, that would go into a, a stew or fried oysters, oyster poor boy type preparation. So the, the people with the bottom leases 
and people that are growing them even off bottom have an opportunity to produce something that uh, would still go into that processed oyster market with lower inputs of materials and labor uh, and and to grow a larger oyster. See, it takes longer to grow the oyster larger and, and the uh, aquaculture producers like to get the product out of the water and into the market to generate the cash flow that they need, but also to free up the space in their gear for their next crop of oysters. Uh, so I think over time, we'll figure that out. The uh, Chesapeake Bay has a similar industry that's gotten very big and they're, they're producing some oysters now that go into the processed oyster market to supplement their income with their high end, um, often you know have a boutique name. I mean, here locally we have Navy Cove, uh, an Admiral Oyster Company here on this side of the bay. You've got uh, Murder Points and you've mentioned the French Hermits over in, in your neck of the woods. Uh, those names are, are as saleable as the oysters are in many cases. You got a lot of sizzle with the steak, so to speak, when you've got that marketing of a particular name. Uh, but that's that's different from that's that's a it's a new addition and it's going to take a while to sort of have it all integrated into the the overall oyster market. You did, Chris, you did a great job of of differentiating what how it's different once you get that finished product and how it how it ultimately gets to the market. I didn't really understand that differentiation very well, but. I know Anita and Mike are well, it's really well. Mike, Mike's also in the peer business and, and built my peer, and I've known him for many years. Uh, his brother was a priest here, is a priest here in coastal Mississippi. But, um, you know, the French Hermit Oyster, what I remember about it is it tasted great, <laughs> really, really good. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, you, and you're right. I mean, the shells may have seemed slightly smaller, but, man, I remember a really meaty oyster, really meaty oyster. And uh, it may, you know, maybe that they actually like it to be more medium size, so it's you know, more of that delicacy or whatever. I'm not exactly sure how they well, look at that. Yeah, one of the one of the advantages that you have if you're going to use a hatchery seed is um, you can you can get a triploid oyster, meaning it's got three sets of chromosomes. Uh, you know, something that's going to reproduce uh, humans to oysters have two sets of chromosomes. These oysters being triploid have three sets and they don't reproduce. And so the energy that, that, that an oyster would spend, which is a tremendous amount of energy in the uh, spring and summer is spent by the animal to reproduce itself, doesn't, doesn't happen. So it allows them to uh, grow a little bit faster, but, it, but the bigger advantage is that meat stays firm throughout the year, as opposed to the cycle that you see with the wild oyster uh, or the natural oyster, the diploid oysters, is they get very, very firm and uh, and meaty, what we call fat. A lot of people talk about, oh, the oysters are fat. There's there's not animal fat there. They're just fat in the shell. And then they lose that. Uh, they, that's converted over to uh, gametes, to, uh, reproductive material in the spring. And then the oysters spawn uh, in the early summer, and then it takes them until you know, November, a lot of times around here to get fattened back up because the water is so warm. And so you, you so, obviate all that cycle whenever you're using yeah. triploid oysters. So interesting. But see, there there's the scientists in you uh, talking about <laughs> those differentiating factors. I, 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 I recall Justin Wilson 
once saying that, you know, the famous Cajun uh, uh, chef saying that he said, uh, that oyster was so big, I had to swallow it twice. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, it is it is interesting, man. I mean, depending on where where the oysters come from, whether the water is clear or muddy, whether there's more rain or not. Uh, I mean, how many different? I mean, how many different genetic types of oysters are there? Well, there are a lot of different, you know, and that's a really good question. I don't think that science um, knows specifically how many. What you might say is a strain. You know, we've gotten a lot of lot of science has been thrown at us the last twenty four months with studying viral science with the different strains of COVID. Right. Well, with oysters. You have the same, you know, not not the same genetics, of course, but a similar situation where, you know, our mo how different are Mobile Bay oysters from oysters in Mississippi Sound over off Mississippi compared to oysters on in western Louisiana compared to oysters in Texas or Florida? And I don't think we really have the answer to that. Uh, and and then furthermore, if they're different, so what? Does it matter if or if you move them around a lot? Because that's the big fear is, you know, someone over in Florida. Well, if if you're going to particularly with this aquaculture opportunity, if you're going to have aquaculture seed come from a hatchery in Alabama, uh, and you're in Florida, do I do they need to be worried about bringing in genetics from the local oyster in Alabama into their their more um, you know local uh, ecosystem in in uh, say the Panhandle over around Apalachicola Bay, uh, a lot of ecologists would say, "Yeah, that's definitely something we need to be concerned with." And I think, rightfully so, they're very conservative about it. And so the, yeah. the genetics for for the local area is often once they they want to conserve that and and have oysters put in the environment that are of the same or similar genetic strain as the oysters that were there traditionally. And so that yeah. is a concern. But but they all in general, to answer your question here, I'm I'm giving you the long winded uh, Dr. Fauci answer here, but the 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 real answer is oysters from Texas to Maine are all the same species. And that's what's really important because you know, species are what define whether or not something can it can interbreed. You need to stop me. Yeah, let's do this. We'll pick it up on the other side. This We're having a conversation with Chris Nelson, the president of Bon Secours Fisheries in Lower Baldwin County, Alabama, who has a good, good sort of overview of the entire Gulf. When we come back, we'll, uh, we'll enjoy a final segment together. We'll see you after this break. You can also listen live to Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on your Amazon Alexa devices. Once you've enabled the skill, just say, Alexa, open Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Back to my friend Chris Nelson, uh, who I got to know really well when I was working over in Alabama. So one of my, one of my favorite people, his family, and what they mean to you know the lower portions of Alabama. I can't I can't overstate how important they are. It's great to see a generational commitment to a business like like they have. And we're talking about oysters right now. When we went to break, you were talking about the species of oysters, whether it be Maine or Texas, it's the same. But they can be very different tasting, can't they? Absolutely. And and that's become a big 
driver of the aquaculture industry in establishing a name for your oyster that's often attached to where it's grown, like the French hermit is grown off Mississippi on outside of your, your um, outer banks, so to speak, your barrier islands, and that oyster is gonna taste different from an oyster in Alabama, which will taste different from an oyster over around Apalachicola, which will be different from say a North Carolina or a Maine or a Massachusetts oyster. And, and that um, is being sold as a, a big part of, of why, to, why you want to carry oysters if you're a restaurant from all these different areas, similar to wines. And in fact, there was even a term that's been coined. I don't particularly like it, but it is being uh, thrown around meroir, uh, which is similar to the terroir that you talk about with wines. And meroir would be the, the uh, in this case, the oyster having the characteristics of the water that it's grown in. And that's really what it is. It's the salinity and yeah. know, general content of the water. And they can be so different. One of our favorite restaurants when we travel, we, we spend, we go to Key West pretty regularly. And there's a restaurant there that every, every afternoon, late, you know, early evening has a, a, a kind of a special and they, they specialize in different oysters from different regions of the country. So when they put them in front of you, it depends on what, what's available will depend upon what they put in front of you, but they might have someone, a, 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 a one from Chesapeake, one from Maine, one from, you know, somewhere in Florida, someone from the, some from the Gulf. And when they put them in front of you, it's it's amazing to me. They're all fine, you know, but it always seems that the Gulf oyster is better. I, I just that was maybe that's just my experience, but it's just multiple times experiencing the same experience. Do you tend to have a tendency to lean toward the Gulf Gulf oyster more? I, I do, and, and actually, um, the one thing I'll caution you: there is, there, in my mind, there is no such thing as a Gulf oyster, although a lot of people refer to it as that, Ricky. It's yeah. a Gulf Coast oyster, and and you know the Atlantic coast or the East Coast has lots of different bays. The Gulf has you know all those different bays and bayous and inlets where oysters are grown, even naturally. And uh, our oyster is often a little milder in flavor. You can get some you know because the oyster grows very very uh, fast, so you're eating a younger oyster typically off the Gulf Coast. Uh, on the East Coast, you've got product that, that's taking um, two to three years at least to get to maturity. A lot of these aquaculture oysters, particularly if they're grown off bottom along the Gulf Coast, they're reaching maturity in 18 months. And so you've got a, a very young oyster with a, a relatively thin and smaller shell, but it does have a milder flavor. Um, a, a big deal is made out of the salt content. And so Gulf oysters are a lot of times thought of as not being as salty oysters off the Gulf Coast because we have a lot of freshwater input. You think about it. I mean, we've got, you know, the, the riverine systems in Alabama, the, the, the Mississippi River, huge input of fresh water. You got to go over to Texas or Florida to get away from really the fresh water. And, and on the East Coast, you've got Chesapeake Bay and you've got some other uh, systems, but more where they, because of the um, population near the coast, you've got a, a lot of uh, potential pollution sources. So they almost have to get out in the Atlantic Ocean to grow their oysters. And so they're often very, very salty, like the, like the Atlantic Ocean. 
That is, that's that's so interesting to me. And um, you're right, freshwater. As we <laughs> we got too much of an education about freshwater when the Bonnie Carey Spillway opened, but mm-hmm. you know some freshwater is not a bad thing actually. You know, finding that sweet spot between freshwater yeah. and saltwater. Uh, oysters kind of thrive in that kind of environment, don't they? Oysters, oysters are the prototypical estuarine animal, and and an estuary is where the the rivers and the bays meet the uh, ocean, right? And so the bays uh, and bay systems are the estuaries, and oysters are genetically uh, adapted to being able to survive the the changes in salinity and that mixture. Uh, a lot of people refer to it as brackish water, but it's it's estuarine salinity between ocean, full oceanic strength and 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 full freshwater. And so, you know, if oysters are going to grow where they naturally would have grown, they're going to vary in how much salt they've got in them, depending on how much rainfall there's been, um, and, and and that's challenging from time to time. I know that I know that it can be. Hey, listen, man, we could spend another show just talking about all this stuff. It's it's fascinating to me, and you know what you're talking about. That's why I wanted you on the show. From time to time, we'll have you back. I'm sorry it's taking so long to get you on, Chris. Oh, I, I, I think I think the world of you, and uh, you're one of the good guys. And I hope you and your family continue to have you know you know a good a good run of it, my friend. Thanks, thanks, Ricky. Great to see you. It's been a pleasure. This has been Chris Nelson from Bond Secure Fisheries, and uh, have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. Follow Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Super Talk MS Coast 103.1. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.